1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're making our way through a, uh, a most difficult letter that dealt with several issues, many of which are applicable today. I think it's, you know, if you were to pick a letter that Paul wrote to the churches, 1 Corinthians is one of those letters that, uh, that speaks to our cultural moment in this time. Uh, in the last few passages, he's dealt with sexual morality, and, and he brings that back here in the context of marriage. And I, I don't know of a, a more pointed aspect of this chapter um, for us, given the pervasive sexual morality of our cultural moment in the West here today. Uh, he's speaking to the church at Corinth, but he could be speaking to us, especially all of us who are a product of the, the post-1960 sexual revolution. I was born in 1966, so I was born right in the heart of this movement that, according to philosophers and psychologists and sociologists, freed us from the, the, the Western world, from its puritanical constraints. That's what they said anyway. And it was a revolution, but it was not one of freedom. It was one of destruction. We know this. This revolution was against God's creation, It was blatant and extreme rebellion against the living God and his order for life, for relationships, for families, for culture, for community. It wasn't freedom. It led to the destruction and abuse of our bodies and our minds and our souls. It produced at least two going on three entire generations that have no concept of gender identity and purpose. It has led to the perversion of the mind and the consumption of people as sex objects rather than people created in the image of God. It has led to the systematic murder of millions and millions of unborn children. But without question, as grievous as those things are that I just listed, the most detrimental impact the sexual revolution has had on us as a people is the destruction of the marriage, the tearing apart of the institution of marriage between a man and a woman becoming one and bearing fruit. So foundational to God's created order that the dominions of darkness understood that if they could bring sexual immorality to bear upon marriages and to bear upon families, they could take apart and dismantle the very means by which God was going to restore this broken world. If they could dismantle biblical marriages... They could dismantle the family. If they could dismantle the family, then they could send children from broken homes out to marry and make more broken homes to bring death instead of life, infidelity instead of fidelity. Paul's teaching here on 1 Corinthians is not some sideline teaching on how to be a better husband or a more faithful wife. It's not. It is fundamental to our lives as a people, as a community, and as a culture. It is foundational to the great work of the gospel coming in and restoring families that restore communities, that restore the world. So by God's grace this morning, we will look at 1 Corinthians 7. It is a controversial passage, not because it's difficult to understand. It's controversial because it's contrary to almost everything the culture tells us about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The exact opposite. I imagine some of you are going to hear this and... maybe question whether or not the word of God actually says this. By God's grace, you'll have ears to just listen and then go back and 
and search the word for yourself. Be a good Berean. Come and ask me or Pastor Kurt or another mature male and female in the church. I want to look at three things this morning. First, the general principles of marriage delineated here in 1 Corinthians 7. There are others, but lest this sermon turn into a five-hour sermon, we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians 7. The general principles of marriage. Number two, the application of marriage to specific life circumstances. It's very detailed. And then number three, the guiding principles found in Christ. The general principles of marriage, the application of marriage to specific life circumstances, and then number three, the guiding principles found in Christ. First, the general principles of marriage. Paul was writing at a time when many of the Jews argued that marriage was obligatory, that if you were a Jewish believer, you were to get married. Some in the Corinthian church were actually arguing the opposite, saying it was undesirable to get married, if not completely wrong. It had gotten back to the Apostle Paul via letter, likely, that some in the Corinthian church had embraced a form of marital asceticism. Look at verse 1, arguing that it was good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, including a believer's own spouse. No sexual relations of any kind. Paul addresses their concerns here specifically, and then he goes into a more protracted dialogue on both the blessings and the parameters of what a biblical marriage is. Look at verse 2. He writes, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So rather than than sex or physical intimacy being something bad or to be avoided in the context of a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman, I must say that in our time, a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman, Paul says that the temptation in Corinth was such to sexual infidelity and licentiousness, just as it is today, he actually commands husbands and wives to be faithful in their physical intimacy one to another. Their conjugal rights. Look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. The word should there... In the English, it sounds like it's optional. In the Greek, it's an imperative, meaning it's a command. Husbands, you are commanded to engage in conjugal physical intimacy with your wives, wives to your husbands. And why? Paul says very clearly here, because the temptation to sexual immorality is so extreme and so severe that you want to cut that off. Don't let Satan in. Therefore, do not withhold it, husbands, from your wives and wives from your husbands. Each partner in a marriage has certain rights and duties one to another. And in, in, in that male-dominated culture, it must have been so inspiring for me, females to hear this. Look at verse 4. It says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It was such a radical departure from the cultural teaching on marriage. And the cultural teaching at that time, and it sure plays into today, wives were considered property. Marriage was entered into for convenience and consumption rather than an other-centered giving. Paul reveals here that a biblical marriage is fundamentally other-centered where two people joyfully and willfully enter into a covenant to give themselves one to another. It's a giving relationship. It's a nourishing relationship. And here, Paul says, even in sexual intimacy, which... In our cultural moment, and then as well, it was all about personal satisfaction. You know, when we talk about sex today, it's about what you can get and the joy you get out of it. 
But here, it's inverted. It's redefined as an other-centered expression of love. Physical intimacy is, is giving to your husband or giving to your wife. So much so that Paul says, do not deny your partner this radical expression of other-centered love. Don't deny your partner that. Look at verse 5. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul understood, and we certainly ought today, how Satan and the dominions of darkness use sexual temptation to come into a healthy Christian marriage and divide it. I, I don't think there's a greater weapon that is being used today in the onslaught against marriages and families than sexual temptation and sexual infidelity. Tearing apart homes. The statistics are overwhelming, and, and I wrote several down here. I won't give them all to you. They're statistics, right? And whenever you're talking about statistics, you have to be somewhat suspect, but especially when you're talking about statistics pertaining to infidelity, because most people who are being unfaithful to their husband or wife aren't going to tell the truth. They're possibly going to lie. So likely, these numbers that I will give you are even a little bit low. 41% of marriages, one or both spouses admit to infidelity, physical or emotional. 41% of all marriages. 57% of men and 54% of women admit to committing infidelity in a relationship with a girlfriend or a spouse. 22% of married men have strayed at least once during their married life. 14% of the women. 36% of men and women admit to having an affair with a co-worker. 36%. 74%, these two are the, to me, are the most grievous. 74% of men, three-fourths of all men, say they would have an affair if they knew they would never get caught. And women, 68%, said the same. I'll have an affair if I won't get caught. How seriously does God take this? 72-year-old pastor, Connecticut, Bobby Davis, after serving 47 years in a church he founded, was urged by his wife to come before the congregation and confess his sin of marital infidelity to the church. This happened in May, a few months ago. After the service, he asked the church to stay. He confessed the sin of infidelity. And as people, some people were upset, some people were praying, he dropped dead on the spot. Now, some of you might say, that's a bizarre coincidence. Maybe. Or maybe God takes the the sin of marital infidelity so seriously that like Ananias and Sapphira, he will not have his pastors, he will not have his children engaging in such a licentious lifestyle. For this reason, Paul says, guard your spouse's heart. Do not deprive them from their conjugal rights, lest they be tempted to infidelity. But marriage wasn't for everybody, according to Paul. Look at verse 6. He says, now, as a concession, not a command... I say this, verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And so Paul is saying, Paul was not married at this time, and there's great speculation as to whether or not he was as a widow, but he wasn't married when he was writing this, and God had gifted him with the means to stay unmarried that he might serve more faithfully with his time and energies in the work of the gospel and planting of churches. But Paul makes it very clear here, he says that there are, one of one gift of one kind and one of another. In other words, if you were gifted by God to remain single, then remain single that you might serve him faithfully. And if you're gifted by God to be married, then get married and serve him faithfully. In other words, there's different giftings that are taking place here. And we're we're going to look at this in more detail next week as we look at the latter part of 
chapter 7. But some in the Corinthian church were using verses like this to say that getting married was bad or that having sexual relations with your husband or wife was bad. Now, this is not in line with Scripture. Most of you know this. The Bible is very clear that marriage is the normal state for most people. Marriage is the normal state for most people. One state is not better than the other, but each state should be exercised according to the gifting that God has placed upon you to get married or to remain single. Far from hindering spiritual growth, if you have been equipped by God to be married then you, and you're in a healthy marriage and you know it is something that brings great growth for both the husband and the wife. God said in Genesis 2.18, and I think he was pretty serious, he said it's not good for man to be alone. In Hebrews 3.14, marriage is revealed as a divine institution that is to be honored and kept pure. So glorious is the institution of marriage. We know this, that the Bible uses the marriage between a husband and a wife to illustrate the radical love that Christ has for his church, the bride. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4.3, the forbidding of marriage is one of the signs of the great apostasy to come. So Paul is not saying here that, that marriage is bad. He's speaking directly to some of the, the, the heresies that had made their, their way into the Corinthian church. He overturns the false teaching by some of the Jews that said that marriage was obligatory. He says, no, if you've been gifted to celibacy and you can serve God faithfully without the sexual temptation of immorality, then remain single and serve God. He also overturned the false teaching that those who were getting married or were married and engaged in physical intimacy were sinning as well, and he overturns that. And so he lays out some wonderful general principles on marriage that are they're didactic, they're instructional, but they're so pertinent for us today. And then in the, in the second point that I want to look at, he actually addresses four different groups within this general teaching on marriage. He addresses the unmarried and the widows. He addresses the married he addresses the, the, the mixed marriages where a Christian is married to a non-Christian and, and they stay, and then another situation where the Christian's married to a non-Christian and the non-Christian leaves. And he, and he deals with all of those. What's amazing to me is, um, especially in light of the past few years here at our church, this scripture is so radically clear. And yet even here, we couldn't, we couldn't get this right. So many who went through here and then left here as a result of this just wouldn't submit to some simple teachings that Paul made radically clear. Let's take a look. Point number two, the application to life circumstance. To the unmarried and the widows, he speaks first, verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. At that time... Widows and the unmarried, they were vulnerable to constant temptation and pressure to marry. And as we'll look at last week, it was coupled with a, a present distress. And so there were circumstances taking place in Corinth that, that enabled Paul to say to some, you know, if you're not married or you're a widow, don't get married again. Okay? And we'll look at that. It's verse 26 of chapter 7. We'll look at that next week. Um, but he says to the unmarried and the widows, remain as you are if you're gifted to do so. If you can, then, then don't get married. Because if, if you can stay unmarried, then you're, uh, you're able to, whether a male or female, you're able to take the energies and time you would focus on a spouse or raising a family, and you may devote them to the gospel. You may devote them to the church, and you may engage in, in a holy work. So when he says it is good for them to remain single, he's not saying that because marriage is bad or remarrying is bad. He's saying it's good for you to remain single because you'll have an unfettered time 
to serve Christ in, in the sharing of the gospel and the ministering to people. In other words, you'll be able to bear much fruit for the kingdom and in so doing, be blessed. This is why he said it was good for them to remain single. But he says it's only good for you if you're able to control your sexual desires. Paul commands them to be married rather than suffer the consequences, as we saw about two weeks ago, living a life of sexual immorality and not inheriting the kingdom of God. And so he says if you can, if you're, if you're not so tempted by, by um, sexual desires, you can remain unmarried, then do so. But if you can't, he actually, it's a command here again. It says should. It's just, it's tough in the English, but it's not optional. It's an imperative. He's saying you should get married. In other words, you've got to get married. If you're a widow, if you're unmarried, and you can't control yourself sexually, he says, then you've you got to get married. Otherwise, you'll suffer the consequences of God's wrath. So first he talks to the widows and the unmarried. And again, we'll look at this more in detail next week because he expands on this at the latter part of chapter 7. But the next he turns his attention in verses 10 and 11, he turns his attention to the married. Look at verse 10. He says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. This is a charge. It is a command again. And Paul adds, not I, but the Lord. Why did he say this? Because Jesus had already taught on this. Jesus had already made this very clear within the Gospels. And so he's repeating a teaching that had already come from our Lord's mouth. Simply put, Jesus taught this. Paul reiterates this. It's simple. He says that marriage is for life. Marriage is for life. And therefore, married couples are not to separate or divorce, but to stay one until one or both dies. Why? Because the two have become one. Now, there may be circumstances, listen closely, that may necessitate a temporary separation due to physical or emotional lack of well-being for one or both, but the goal of a temporary separation is always temporary and it's always reconciliation. It's always restoration. Too oftentimes in our culture, people separate, but that's just the first step to divorce. That's not what he's saying here. The wife is not to divorce. He uses the word separate from her husband and the husband is not to divorce from his wife. And I'll put a period on that. I don't even want to make this complicated. When a man and a woman get married, it is for life. And that's why we used to say, and many still do, until what? Until death do we part. And that vow was serious. Until death. This teaching that Paul was drawing from is in several aspects of the gospel. I'll read to you from Matthew chapter 19, most pointed. Beginning of verse 3, the Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested him. I love this. They're trying to trick him and they get an answer that enables us to understand marriage better. Jesus had you in mind even in the answer to this question. The Pharisees trying to trick him, they said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That hold fast literally means to glue together permanently. To glue together permanently. And the two, husband and wife, shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, what? Let no man separate. Those King James people say, let no man tear asunder. The simple rendering of this passage calls for marriages to last for life. 
and to only be broken if one or both parties die. It sounds extreme, especially in our cultural moment. It sounded extreme to them. In verse 7 of Matthew 19, the Pharisee said, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They asked us, they said, this, isn't, this teaching is brutal. Marriage for life, for life? No way out, no option out? Listen closely to Jesus' answer. Especially if you have been exposed to some of the false teachings pertaining to marriage and divorce and remarriage that have made their way into Bible-believing, Reformed churches. And it's pervasive. We know all too well here. Listen closely to what he said. In Matthew 19, verse 8, Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. He says in verse 9, I say to you, this is Jesus now, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples understood this too. They understood the extreme nature of this teaching, this death to you part, because in the next verse, in verse 10, the disciples say to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. I mean, you don't want to make a mistake there. And then Jesus said, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. This is a hard teaching. If marriage could be easily entered into and easily exited, as it is today and was in the Corinthian church, then certainly Jesus would not have said not everyone can receive this teaching because it's easy for us to receive that teaching. If I said to you, you get married as long as it's good for you, stay married. If you don't like it, get a divorce. That's an easy teaching. That's a fleshly teaching. But Christ is saying, no, when you enter into a marriage covenant, it's for life. So you better make a good choice. You better marry well. You better have your parents involved too. There's something to say. He said about arranged marriages. I know today we say, what? Something to be said about husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, talking and teaching to their daughters and sons on this. Jesus said in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning... Man and a woman become one from the very beginning. Adultery, the exception he has here, only in Matthew chapter 5 and only in Matthew chapter 18, by the way. Fidelity breaks, adultery breaks the fidelity of the marriage covenant as well as desertion. These are the only biblical grounds for divorce. But neither, I want to emphasize, neither are commanded. Only biblical grounds, but neither are commanded. And if I read this in the context of what Jesus is saying pertaining to hardness of hearts, and when I contemplate the gospel of grace itself, when we consider our relationship with Jesus Christ and the daily adultery and the daily desertion we commit against him, and yet in his relationship with us, he never leaves us and he never forsakes us, even in the case of adultery, I would struggle with divorce. Before Lori and I got married, I said to her very clearly, you will never get rid of me. I don't care what you do. You will never get rid of me. Even in adultery, there's no way. There's no way. This is for life. This is for life. Ill temper, cruelty, disease, foolishness, dislike, a lack of love, a lack of affection, whatever reason that you can come up with, there are no grounds biblically for divorce, period. Period. No reason. It's contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to an other-centered love. It's contrary to grace and forgiveness. Marriage is indissoluble until one person leaves this place. 
And if a man or woman, they do separate, even here, Paul says if you commit the first sin of, of infidelity and you separate, Paul says they should, once again, a command, remain unmarried or be reconciled because to remarry another man or woman would be adultery compounding the sin. He said if you're going to leave, don't make the sin worse by then remarrying someone else and engaging now in adultery. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 9, anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Same for a man. Spouses must remain single after separation or divorce or be reconciled to their spouse because in God's eyes, what? They're still one. They're still one. This is the only option for Christian couples. Is it any wonder why we fight against this within the context of the church? Is it any wonder? I mean, it's such an extreme teaching. It's saying if you get married, when you get married, it is for life. And if one or both of you leave the other party, then you can't get remarried. You must be reconciled to that husband or wife until they, unless they die. And that's it. No wiggle room. He then addresses the Christian married to an unbelieving spouse who's willing to stay in the marriage. So first he deals with the unwed and the widows. Then he talks about married couples. And now he talks about a mixed couple. You have a saved and an unsaved. Husband and wife. What do you do? Look at verse 12 through 14. Paul says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Going back to verse 12, when Paul says, I, not the Lord, he's not diminishing his apostolic office. He's not suddenly here regressing into Pauline opinion. That was actually taught and brought into this church some time back to use and justify divorce. Saying, well, this wasn't from God. This is Paul. Paul's only saying here, I'm teaching you now on something that Christ hasn't spoken to that I'm aware of. And so he's teaching to something that wasn't directly addressed and then written down in the gospel testimonies. But he's still an apostle. And therefore what he says from this point on is still divinely inspired. He's speaking from the apostolic office. And what he does is he counters some of the lies that made their way into the Corinthian church. And some were arguing that if you're in a mixed marriage, if you're saved and your spouse is unsaved and that marriage is unclean, it's unholy, and you should leave. That's convenient. I haven't heard that one today. A believer is certainly, now listen carefully, especially if you're young and unmarried, a believer is not to enter into a marriage with someone other than another believer. They are to be equally yoked. Okay? But there may be a circumstance that, that two professing Christians enter into the marriage and then one forsakes the faith. Or two non-believers get married and one is saved. What do you do in that situation? What do you do when you're now in a marriage where one person's a believer and the other is not? Paul gives us the answer here. He says, if the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay in the marriage, then believers stay in the marriage. Christian. If your spouse is a, is a nominal believer or a non-believer and, and they're willing to stay in the marriage covenant and stay the course, then you stay in that marriage. And he gives us a wonderful reason why. For the sanctification of that spouse and for the sanctification of those children. 
In other words, the believing spouse, husband or wife, acts as, a, as a, um, uh, some kind of a provisional covering. And, and this teaching, the precise understanding of this is very difficult. It is. It, it does not mean this. Let's just clear this right now. It does not mean that the believing spouse is able to, by their faith, save the husband or save the children. It does not mean that. But it, it does mean something fantastic. Um, it means that there's a blessing of some kind that comes from the believing spouse to the non-believing spouse and the believing spouse to their children. A blessing of some kind that, that comes down to them. Um, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, we have this. On the day that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Children born into the theocracy of Israel were considered holy. They were considered set apart, right? Now, that is the case even though they were conceived in sin, they were brought forth in iniquity, and they needed to to be saved by God. But they were still set apart in a sense. The unbelieving spouse and children are not made inwardly holy. They're not saved by the believers, the believing spouse's profession. Husband, wife, mother, or father. But they are, in a sense, set apart by their intimate union with one of God's children. When rebuking the Pharisees for their hypocrisy in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? In verse 19, he says, You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? God, in some wonderful way, blesses the non-believing spouse and the children. This alone, saints, is compelling reason for the believer to say in a mixed marriage. This alone, that by some means God may use you as an instrument of salvation for your non-believing spouse or your non-believing children, that he will use you to bring true sanctification, true separation through salvation in Christ to your spouse or to your children. Say, all right, but what happens if, if my unbelieving spouse leaves? What happens? The married couple, the believers there, doing everything they can, and that the non-believing spouse says, I'm done, I'm leaving. Look at verse 15. Yet the unbelieving partner separates, Paul says, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And he's saying those latter, verse 16, he says, you don't know that by you staying together that you're actually, it's actually going to lead to the salvation of your unsaved husband. You don't know that. You don't know. So he said, if they want to go, let them go. Don't, don't take him to court. Don't fight to make him stay. If they want to leave, then let them leave. He says, it's, it's an amazing word here. He says, you're no longer bound. You're no longer enslaved to this marital covenant. But instead, you're supposed to strive for peace. Now, I love how specific the Bible is in these teachings. I mean, Paul, Paul starts with those who are married, those, the widows and the unmarried. And then he goes to the married. Then he goes to mixed marriages to stay, mixed marriages that are going to leave. And he tells us how this is to be lived out in the context of the gospel of grace. Now, many in the church have taken this particular passage, these latter few verses here, and when they look at the word not enslaved, they then conclude that that means that the, the, um, the believer 
whose non-believing spouse left, and now the divorce, now now the marriage is um, is broken and divorce takes place, that they can then remarry. This is actually a very common teaching, and you'll actually read it likely in many of your commentators, commentaries. It's an implied inference at best. I believe the teaching falls woefully short in light of so many other specific teachings to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Genesis 2.24, A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The nature of the marriage covenant from the beginning was what? Permanent on this side of heaven. I'll give you a few more. Deuteronomy 22.22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. It was a capitally punishable crime in the theocracy of Israel. Malachi 2.15, the prophet said, Did God not make them, husband and wife, one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And otherwise, the, the Holy Spirit brought two people together as one. Hence, Jesus said, Let no man tear it apart. Christ said in Mark chapter 10, verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And then he says in verse 11, he says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. He repeats this in Luke 16. He repeats it again in Matthew 19. We're going to see next week in 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes Romans 7, 2, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. In other words, there's an absolute and unambiguous teaching here that the, the believer that goes through a divorce does not then have license to then go remarry. And if the only place that we can draw this from is, is 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 15 and 16, then we're, we're standing on... on uh, shaky ground given the other passages that I delineated and there are so many others we don't like what it says I mean fundamentally we don't like it we want to be able to say that I can get married and if I get a divorce and someone divorces me for the wrong reason if they desert me or they commit adultery and get a divorce then I can remarry that's not what the Bible says at the time of the world's creation there was no such thing as divorce it was husband and wife becoming one until death do they part Jesus comes along and he establishes a new law. In Matthew chapter 5, he writes, or he said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him get her a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, but I say to you, listen to this, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual morality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Christ paints a picture here of marriage and divorce and remarriage that is contrary to the culture and certainly contrary to the teaching in many churches. Many churches. These teachings are given to us that as he says at the end here in verses 10, that there might be peace and how we engage and how we relate and how we, we marry and how we stay in that marriage. There might be peace. Now as difficult as this is, it's not without power in its application. I think most of us hear this and we say, this sounds extreme. Not, not only in its teaching, but in its application. How are we supposed to do this? How, how are we supposed to stay in a really hard marriage? How are we supposed to, to stay committed to someone who's not committed to us? 
How am I supposed to stay the course? And if it ends in divorce, how am I supposed to go the rest of my life not, not being married? Is that what Christ is saying? If that person who left me is still alive? This teaching, although difficult, does not lack power. The Bible reveals a gospel orientation in both marriage and divorce. A gospel orientation. At the beginning of Ephesians 5, Paul calls the church at Ephesus to what? To be imitators of God as beloved children. He then says, walking in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then he takes that teaching from the beginning of Ephesians 5 and he draws it in in verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The abiding principle of marriage revealed by Christ and revealed by the Bible is one of sacrificial, other-centered, agape love. It's about the other person. It's about giving. It's about nourishing. It's about cherishing and lifting up and growing your husband or your wife. Now you may say, but even this love has limits. Even this love isn't compelled to stay the course when one or both parties are, are being unfaithful or not terribly kind. I want to ask you this. Answer it rhetorically. How does Christ love the church? How did Jesus Christ give himself up for his bride? How does Christ love you? He came down from heaven. He became a man. He lived a sinless life and then he died a sinner's death. That's how he loved you. Although not deserving of death, he suffered the full consequence of our sin on the cross that we might not suffer the consequence of our sin. So the wretched sinners like you and me could be washed as we saw, sanctified as we saw, and justified, saved from our sin and made, made into a beautiful bride fit for our glorious king. Jesus Christ is the faithful husband who makes holy his most unfaithful bride. He's the faithful husband that comes and makes us holy when we're most unholy. He does all this. He comes to us. He calls us. He redeems us. And he saves us, not because we're deserving, but because of his grace. And he comes to us when we're the most unlovable, the most unattractive, and the most unsuitable spouses. That's when he comes to us. Not fit for marriage. Certainly not marriage to a king, a sinless king. Out of his love for God and his love for those whom he would save, Jesus entered into, listen closely, a once and forever unbreakable covenant relationship with his people, the church. This is the marriage that God entered into with mankind. This is the marriage that Christ entered into with his church. Unbreakable, forever and ever. Our earthly marriages, and our earthly marriages were bound until we die. Jesus entered into a once and forever relationship with us by his death, sealing our marriage forever. Jesus Christ, by the sacrifice he made, his death and his resurrection, he established a covenant that no man or demon can tear asunder, promising to never leave us or forsake us, even when we attempt on multiple occasions to leave and forsake him.
He remains faithful. His love is never failing. His concern for our ultimate well-being is never ending. This is both the model that our Lord establishes and the power for us to live in like manner. It's this love that God expresses that God expresses to us in Christ that he gives us in the Holy Spirit that can flow freely from us in our marriages, in our relationships. It's God's love for us that has the power, listen saints, that has the power to enable us as a holy people to love our, our spouses as Christ loves the church. Not because we're commanded to. We are commanded to but because we want to. Because our love for God and our love for others compels us to. If you have the love of Christ through the Holy Spirit, that love has power to love others in, in very selfless, radical, other-centered ways. You see, saints, a gospel-changed heart, a gospel-changed heart will not go to the Bible and say, what are the minimum requirements for me to love my wife? A gospel-changed heart doesn't ask that question. A gospel-changed heart will not go to the Bible and say, what is the loophole to get me out of this most difficult marriage? How do I get out of this? A gospel-changed heart doesn't do that. A gospel-changed heart will ask questions like this. What is best for my spouse? What is best for my spouse that's driving me crazy? What is best for my spouse that, that is causing great harm in my marriage? How can I love my spouse to the cross of Christ? How can I press them into the love of God? How can I truly... Here's a gospel-centered orientation. How can I truly express my love for God and my love for my spouse in such a way that the world will see me and know that I belong to Christ? They truly know that I'm saved. If these questions in the context of marriage sound strange to you, it's only because your view of marriage, and we can go beyond that, of intimate relationships in general, has been twisted by the views of the culture. If it sounds strange to you, it's only because somehow the teachings of the world have made their way in. Getting married is not to satisfy your wants and your needs and your desires. Fundamentally, it's not. In a healthy marriage, it will. Radical blessings. Paul even deals with it here in terms of sexual morality. In a great marriage, there'll be so many blessings that come upon you. But that's not why you enter the marriage. The foundation of every marriage is the principle of agape love. It is a willful and intentional act, lifelong to encourage, to nourish, and to cherish your spouse. That you're going to do that. Whether you want to or not. It's a covenant decision that is not moved by circumstances or difficulties. It is you saying, I will love you, my wife, or wives to your husband. I will love you in sickness and in health for better or for worse until death do we part and meaning it. Because that's agape love. That's how Christ loves us. That's how Christ loves the church. That's how Christ loves you if you're in Christ. A covenant decision. I know that, that doesn't make for a good Hollywood movie. 
just doesn't. Love today is perpetuated, lots of emotion, lots of passion. And by God's grace, those will be there too. But underneath it all is a commitment. It is a willful, joyful decision. Say, I'm going to love you if you don't love me. I'm going to nourish and care for you even if you try to hurt me. I'm going to love you as Christ loves the church, as Christ gave himself up for the church. This will bring great, great honor and glory to God and display for all the world to see another centered, a gospel centered, sacrificial love. This is true freedom. Not a freedom that leads to destruction, disease, brokenness, and heartache like the sexual revolution. This is true freedom. When you love and live as God created you to love and live as other-centered, agape-loving people, where others, your concern for others, your true desire for others is above yourself. Spouse, children, brothers and sisters in Christ, members of your family, co-workers, the lost. A gospel-centered heart, a, a heart that's been reoriented by God, it's been turned from stone to flesh is one that is not constantly me, me, me. It's concerned about you. It's concerned about the other. It's an expression of real, active love for the well-being of other people. <coughs> Certainly your spouse. I want you to notice here, <clears throat> as I close, in every case that Paul dealt with in this passage, the concern was about the other person. In every single case. Right for the unmarried and the widowed. He said, out of your love for God and your love for the, the growth of the church, he says, stay unmarried. Other-centered. To the married. He says, out of your love for God and out of your love for your spouse, stay married, even when it's hard. Stay married. Other-centered. To those in mixed marriages. He says, listen, if your husband or your wife is not saved, then stay in the marriage for their sanctity for the potential of God using you to save them, stay in the marriage, other-centered. And even, even when that unmarried spouse, that, that non-believing spouse leaves, Paul says here, don't, don't go after him, don't take him to court to try to force the marriage covenant, let him go, so there might be peace. Even in that situation, it's always about the other. Saints, in 1 Corinthians 1 through 16, more, it's more than several practical teaches on, teachings on marriage. It's there. They're very practical. And by God's grace, we'll submit to him. But the apostle reveals here the underlying gospel principle that drives them all. All those what-to-do decisions you have to make in these circumstances. Underneath it all is the gospel. It is the love that Christ has for you and is poured out on you in the Holy Spirit that you might be able to love in this other-centered gospel way. A love for others that is both fueled and fortified by the love that God has for you in Christ. The greatest mistake that you can make is to take these didactic teachings, these teachings that establish principles and laws, and say, okay, I must do this, and I must do this, and I must do this. You must. But that, that can't be the motivation. If you go home, wise, if you go home to your husband, it's nice, you know, I, you know, pastor talked about this in 1 Corinthians 7, that I have to recognize the conjugal rights because that's what the Bible says, that's missing the mark. Husbands, if you say you know, to your wife, you know, I'll stay in the marriage because I have to, 
I, I made a covenant with you, but I don't love you anymore. It's missing the mark. Underneath these teachings, these very practical, real teachings for all these life circumstances is the heart of the gospel itself. It is that other-centered love that you now have in Christ. If you know Christ, if you know Christ, as we were just singing, then you have love that should be overflowing from your cup and pouring into your spouse and pouring into your children and pouring into the church. Pouring out. By his grace, by his grace, and it will take that, we individually and collectively as a church will live such gospel-centered, other-centered, agape-loving lives. With our spouses, certainly. With our children. With one another as members of a body. And with the lost. That we will, we will see their state apart from Christ. And that we will share with them the truth and the love of Christ. That they too might know this love that God has. Go back. Study this passage well on your own. See if you render what I have rendered. And if you, if you say, I, I don't know that I agree, then, then grab someone and, and sit down with them. This teaching, these teachings on, on, on marriage and family are so fundamental to the restoration of God's broken creation. We cannot miss this. We cannot. The culture has certainly missed it, and many churches have as well. We cannot. We must get this right. Marriages fall, families fall. Family falls, there's brokenness. So let's get this right. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for this wonderfully clear teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage, but more specifically to the gospel itself. A gospel that, that calls us to, to love others in a way that is most unnatural. I praise you for the display of love that Christ has shown us through his broken body, through his death and through his resurrection, in becoming a man, in the love that he has displayed for his church. I pray, Lord, that we would not only see the model he's established, but that we would receive the power that comes from that kind of love being poured out in our lives. A love so real and so transforming that we as sinners saved by grace, can love others as well in like manner. I pray this for myself. I pray this for my brothers and sisters here. This would not be a teaching that falls on deaf ears or some systematic approach toward marriage and divorce. But we would see, Lord, that you have given us power in the Holy Spirit to be these other-centered people, to love like this, to love people we don't like very much, to love people that hate us, to stay in difficult relationships, even marriages. I pray, Lord, that you would pour out in our lives this type of radical love that we might pour it out as well. In so doing, we will live differently. We will certainly live differently as a church and the people will know that you are God because only you can do this great work in the heart of man. Bless us in this way, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.